Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to my podcast, Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, now, to clarify, as I do before every show, I'm not a rabbi. I'm a spiritual director, actually, but I'm not a rabbi. But if I was a rabbi, I wouldn't be that kind of rabbi. That's the way I kind of look at these things. Today, I wanted to talk to somebody that I've worked with and admired for a long time. Uh, I, uh, full disclosure, have worked in politics. You're not supposed to admit you work in politics for some strange reason, but I have, and I enjoy doing it. I've worked with uh, liberals. I've worked with the Green Party. I've worked with the NDP. There's one party I haven't worked with, but that's the way it goes. You can't have everything. Where would you put it? So for me, uh, one of the things that was always sort of discordant about working in politics was where the actual sacred and honorable relationships lay in an adversarial system that kept trying to insist that, well, we're absolutely right, and that means they're absolutely wrong, and how many more things fall through the cracks, and what it does to a person to be in a political life, and to be public, uh, is always something that you have to take into account, and for a lot of people, that can be corrosive. For other people, it can be the kind of thing that they thrive on. Uh, my guest right now is the former Premier of Ontario, and I will always call her Premier, uh, and uh, someone who I think uh, we could have a very good discussion about these particular topics with, Premier Kathleen Wynne. Hello. Hello. How are you, Ralph? I'm fine. I haven't seen you in quite a while. No, it's very nice to see you. Well, I've been thinking about you a lot, because I, I thought about you during the election campaign and the difficulty of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also thought of you when I realized you actually were going to sit in the legislature, that you were going to do this, and that most people wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to start by wondering, for you personally, what made you think, no, I'm going to go back into that place after all this, and I'm going to take my seat? Well, the um, the... The really important factor for me in making that decision was that I had been reelected by my constituency. And, uh, you know, in an election where we were decimated, the liberals were decimated, um, it, it seemed really important to me that I honor the fact that the people of Don Valley West had reelected me and, uh, and that I had an obligation and have an obligation to serve them and that's that's what i uh, that's what i've been doing i think the other the other factor was that um i i felt strongly that i wanted to at least for the short term you know not forever obviously but for the short term i wanted to support my team um there were only 7 of us who had been reelected and uh john fraser as the interim leader i felt deserved to have as much support as he could from the other 6 of us and going immediately into a by election would not be supportive would not have been supportive, right, right. you know, and it's uh, it's not what it's not what I wanted to do. And quite frankly, it's been it's been hard. It's been hard to be in the legislature. But I I was elected in 2003 as an MPP and I loved the work mm. then and I love it now. You know, I didn't I didn't run for office in 2003 to be the premier. I ran to be an MPP. 
And that's the work I learned to do. I wasn't a minister for three years when I was first elected. So I knew and know how to be a backbench MPP, and that's that's what I've been doing. Now, in a slightly different circumstance, obviously. Obviously, but there's so many parts to this. So one, the word you used in there that I remember I did a, a series of interviews for videos for campaign in 2011 for the Liberals. Right. And uh, I kept realizing everybody kept using the word serve or service. And then I realized that many of them, well, many of them were Roman Catholic. uh, And the Liberal Party has roots in Roman Catholicism much further than it does in the Protestant faiths, uh, which is sort of seen as the Conservative Party in in a place like Ontario. But I I was really fascinated when I'd say, why do you do this? And they go, well, I want to serve. And I was brought up to believe in service. You were brought up in the United Church, right? I was, yeah. And you stayed in the United Church through all this, have you not? I did. Yeah, I was, I was raised in the United Church. My grandparents, actually, um, my family was Presbyterian in Ooh. Ontario. Um, my grandmother and grandfather on my father's side, my, my mother was orphaned and she didn't, she didn't have a history in Ontario, but my, my uh, paternal grandparents grew up in southwestern Ontario in a place called Adelaide is where my great, great grandfather came in 1860 and he was a Presbyterian from Glasgow and um, a funny story in 1925 when the United Church was formed um, because it was Presbyterians Congregationalists um, Methodist? Methodists yeah, yeah. and um, he came down to Toronto from southwestern Ontario stayed with my grandmother whose name was Evie Eva and um, he went to the meeting at Mutual Street Arena and Voted um, in the meeting on union, whether to unite or not. He came home to my grandmother's house on Lytton Boulevard in North Toronto, and he said, so he was in his 90s at this point, and his name was Willie Watson, and he said to her, Evie, I think I stood up at the wrong time <laughs> because he was against union. Oh, no. He, so he was what became called a continuing Presbyterian, which he hated because he was a Presbyterian. So, yes. I have long and deep roots in the United Church. I was raised in Richmond Hill United Church, belong to Fairlawn Avenue United Church in North Toronto, and have done since my children were little. And so, you know, the roots of the Liberal Party in Roman Catholicism was, I mean, that was not, that was not for me an issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was always a liberal, and my family were liberal, and they were Protestant. So, so what, what is it that, keeps you in the church why is it it, is it important to you today it is important to me and it it's the the reason i the reason i went back to the church because there were you know there's probably a decade between high school when i graduated from high school and then before i had kids um when i wasn't involved with the church particularly i was doing other things not uncommon when my kids were little and we moved we'd been overseas we'd moved back I started going to the church again. And I did that for my own, my own, um, sanity. You know, I wanted, I wanted to be part of the community. I wanted to be involved. And for me, that's what church was. It was community. It is a way of connecting with people on a level other than a transactional one. Right. It's intergenerational, which is important to me. And it's, it's a time during a week when we all can think about something other than 
our own self-interest or the busyness of our lives. And so it was really important to me. And so I started back to the church um, for that, for those reasons. But also, I believe strongly that kids need to have some sense of where their moral code comes from, where their family's moral code comes from. And I was not fussed about whether my kids stayed in the church or not, but I wanted them to know where my moral code came from, my sense of right and wrong, and then they would be able to choose later on. I didn't want them to have no exposure to that because our society is built on... um you know, a, a code that comes from a Judeo-Christian um, philosophy. And so I, I just wanted my kids to understand that. A compass. Give them a compass. Let them do their journey, but give them a compass. Don't just start with nothing, I guess. Right. And if the compass says north, if they want to go south, they can make <laughs> that decision. But at least they know that they're... Which they do. Which you did. You know, yeah. you, uh, you finished being a teenager. You... you classic that you spend the next 10 years going, whatever, and now I'll move my life through. And then you have kids and think, well, what am I going to tell them about the big questions in life? You know, I stayed in the church against my family's, um, I don't know, it wasn't their advice, but my parents left the church. My parents left Ooh. Richmond Hill United Church in the 60s because there was a minister who came. His name was Harry Mackay, and he was a, he was a, a kind of a modern preacher. He came, he, he wasn't wearing robes. This was in the 60s, so it was kind of radical. He was walking down into the congregation. He was talking to people and asking them to talk to him. And um, a lot of the people at Richmond United Church couldn't handle it. He actually got drummed out of the church. He was removed. And my parents left and started a house church with Harry Mackay for five years. Every Friday, they met and did a house church, a spiritual engagement, religious engagement with 25. With I mean, it was 25 families that left originally, but with a, a small group. But I stayed. And Ooh. I stayed... So I was a young, like a preteen and teenager. I was part of uh, CGIT, which was the Canadian Girls in Training or Christian Girls in Training group there. So I had a community there. We did youth groups. I had community that I wanted to continue to be part of. And my grandmother was always part of the church. My grandmother gave to the church. She was part of the United Church Women. She was very, very involved. And I think I, I took my cues from her as well as from my parents. So where do you put your spirituality when you're in the transactional, elbows up world of politics? Well, how does it play into that tornado? I, I'll tell you, at one point when you were premier, I saw you at a function and I just wanted to be able to say hello. And there was a phalanx of people around you. And yeah. you were being walked out of the event because you'd done your 12 minutes of welcome and you had the next thing to go to. And you weren't going to be driving that car. You're not allowed to drive that car. You're the premier. You have to sit in the back and that's that. And I, you saw me and I saw you. And I said, you looked at me and you went, hello, Ralph. And I went, hello, premier. And everyone rushed by. And I, I just thought... So this is so artificial now. This is so steeped in layers of, of who you can hear and when you can hear them and what they want and what they don't want and people saying things about you. Where's your spiritual center in the middle of all that? Well, I think it, I think it um, appears in lots of different ways. You know, I think that um, 
I, to the best of my ability, I mean, obviously in that interaction, I didn't have time, but to the best of my ability, I tried to make time for people if they needed to talk to me. I was constantly late for things because I'd be talking to people and, um, and trying to hear them. Um, I, I, I tried to hear people and take what they said to me and feed that into our decision making. You know, because mm. I think that that's part of my belief about how politics should work. But you feel longing for a connection, like there's a loneliness to being at the top of anything. Yeah, I mean, I did not like being buffered. I never liked being buffered, and and I chafed against it all the time. I mean, for example, when I was first in the role, um, I realized that when we were going to events, and we didn't have a lot of this, thankfully, but there were protesters, you know, at that point, there were people who were protesting wind turbines, for example, right. when I was first, uh, when I was first premier. And I realized really quickly that the OPP were going to try to drive me around to a back door. And... I wasn't going to do that because I'd been a protester. You know, I got into this by protesting Mike Harris. So I wasn't going to not talk to protesters because I'm not afraid of protesters, you know. And so I had to negotiate getting rid of that buffer between me and people who were upset about something. And every single time. I was able to talk to protesters. It was way better. Mm-hmm. It calmed the situation. We had a human connection. And so that, you know, that came out of my belief that human beings are just wanting to interact with each other. You know, what the very worst thing you can do is not listen to people. And so, so that was one of the ways it manifested. I think, I think another way that my spirituality informed my work was when we were making decisions about what our priorities were going to be. Um, I really, I really tried to the very best of my ability to make sure that I made a decision that was consistent with my belief system, that, that I was making a decision that was going to help the greatest number of people possible. That was, that was that was what was guiding me because it's why I was in politics. For me, there was no other reason to be in politics than to find ways to support people in their lives and help them to have better lives. Now, we can have lots of discussions about decisions that we made. And, yeah. I, you know, we lost the election badly in 2018, but we had been in office since 2003. And so we'd been reelected and reelected and... Uh, there's a reason for that. Sure, sure. Right? It's, uh, you know, it's part of a commodification aspect, too, that there's always this. I, I've always been amazed when people say things like, well, I think it's just time for a change. Uh, okay. To what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's just change. Yeah. Uh, just like new and improved shampoo. It's really not. Right. But I have to say that as a marketer every three years, that it's now another product. It's not right. the one you had. Right. And I, I feel that when I, when I look into the political world, when, when I think about what, after two years in Queen's Park, I left. And so a friend of mine said, so what's it like in there? And I said, it's broken. It's a broken system. We don't, 
the idea is to win. That's all it is. It's to win. Like, you don't want those guys in. If, if we don't do what we have to do, they'll get in. You don't want them in. And I was always amazed, for instance, at the kind of partisanship between liberals and new Democrats. I thought, really? You're that far apart that we should be having a war here? And this was always encouraged, this sort of staffer, everybody get your, your elbows up and let's do this. And then I thought about Martin Buber and his idea of what a relationship is. Mm -hmm. The I and it and the I and thou. And I realized that I was not ever able to witness, except in back rooms very occasionally, much less than it used to be, people treating each other as sacred. Mm -hmm. Politicians looking at each other saying, I know you want good and I want good. Dave Meslin has a great idea where he says, everybody, and they do this in a couple of countries, just pick the seat. Intersperse uh, yeah, people. Yeah, pick the seat out of, yeah. out of a hat. And next thing you know, you're sitting beside a new Democrat and a conservative and a green. Yeah. And you become human beings again. Yeah. How did you, as your progression went through from backbencher to premier, did you ever think to yourself, I'm not sure this is good for people? Oh, sure. You know, I think the, the hyper-partisanship, the hyper-competitive environment is um, is very, very tough. And it's uh, it can be soul-destroying, for sure. But I also know that there are individual interactions that save you from that. You know, when in those three years that I was a backbencher, I served on committee with NDPers, with um, with Tories. Um, Shelley Martel, who was a, you know, a really smart, smart member of the NDP from the Sudbury area. She taught me how to mm. how to be on a committee. You know, I watched her and I really modeled the way I asked questions, the way I took notes, the way I interacted with delegates from her. Um, I tried to treat people as human beings, as individuals, and I I didn't engage in really vile character assassination of people. You but know? people have done that with you. Yeah, sure. But that's that's on them, Ralph. That's yes. that's got nothing to do with me, you know? <laughs> I I have to absorb <laughs> that or deflect it, whatever. Or not own it though. Not own it. But I don't have to do that. Yeah. You know, I can be I can I can be a decent human being. And I, quite honestly, of course I have enemies online. I have enemies in, you know, people who, who profess to hate me, who've never met me. But I have a lot more people who I know from other parties who don't hate me and I don't hate them because we treat each other like human beings. And you know, back to that camaraderie that used to exist at Queen's mm. Park. You know, I don't know what fueled that. First of all, it was all men, yeah. right? Secondly, there was a lot more alcohol. You know, there were guys going, no, seriously, <laughs> there, there was a lot more alcohol. And and that may sound like a small thing, but, you it know, lubricant. that lubricated yeah. the social interaction and they would go to games together and they would go hang out at the bar together. Yeah. That's tougher to do when you have young moms and you have people who have different lives, you know. And I think the advent of television on the... Of course. Uh, the proceedings, which is a good thing. I think it's good for people in the public to be able to see their house in action. 
But it also means that there's a, a much higher quotient of performance that goes on in well, the legislature. The heckling alone is beyond my comprehension. You know, I, I, I worked with a minister, and then when he would heckle, I would, I would, he'd come back, and I go, do you really have to? Like, yeah. are you really want to be part of this rabble that high school and, and elementary school yeah. children are, are there in the audience, and this is who we are? Yeah. So I, the, there's degrading aspects. What is... You're not allowed to talk about your religious beliefs as a leader, I've noticed. Andrew Scheer certainly got in trouble at the last election trying to be Catholic and trying not to be Catholic. Uh, what's the place? Where do we put our religious beliefs in our political lives? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, honestly, I think the problem with Andrew Scheer was people just didn't know what the heck he was. Right. You know, I think he just, he dissembled and waffled and right. danced around. And if he had just said, this is who I am, this is what I believe, but this is what I'm going to do. Right. I think it would have been way, way better. Um, and and you're right. I think that there has been, has become a, a sort of a taboo around yeah. faith in the political realm. Interestingly, um, there are, there are young people who are exploring this. You know, there are courses. John Malloy, who was our, yeah. uh, our member, um, talks about this a lot and he's teaching courses on it and how does faith and how does spirituality inform what we do. I think we make a big mistake if we think that our upbringing, if we, if we were raised in a church or a synagogue or a mosque, if we were raised with a, a belief system, I think we make a big mistake if we think that that doesn't inform what we do and how we behave. And we make a big mistake in this country if we don't understand that formal religion, not just nebulous spirituality, but formal religion has had a huge impact on who we are as a country. Sure. It was part of the original deal, you know, in forming Canada. The Catholics and the Protestants had to, had to work that out. Not to mention... You know, the fact that Europeans basically did away with indigenous spirituality and didn't even bring that into the, uh, into the equation. So it's part of our history. It's part of who we are. I think it's much healthier for us to be able to own it. But I do believe that it's very important that we make that separation. I think there should be a separation of course, between of course, but it church and decision-making. Yeah. But it informs who we are. So I want to talk about the indigenous part because I've always associated part of your belief system with indigenous values. Uh, I remember you and I once had a conversation about Attawapiskat. And yeah. it was like, what's the provincial response to it? And I, you'd been on the radio that morning and you said... I'm not sure if, like, I really have this intention. I said, look, you you're sound to me like you're speaking from your heart mm -hmm. about things that matter to you. Why does it matter so much to you in your life? Well, I think it should matter to all of us. Um, but my kind of awareness of this started in 1978. I volunteered. I, I was a... Um, master's student in linguistics at U of T mm. and I was very interested in sociolinguistics and what that means is I was interested in the impact of the language that we speak on our social mobility on our on our interactions in society and so I volunteered for the Department of Indian Affairs as it was called then I was sent to a reserve in northern Ontario called Constance Lake north of Hearst and I was asked 
inappropriately, I will say now. I should not have been asked. I didn't have enough skill or enough experience, but I was asked to do a language survey on this reserve, and I was basically asked to transcribe language that I heard in order to help the department determine whether the language that was spoken was Ojukri or Cree or Ojibwe. There there was confusion. It was just at the time when Ojukri was kind of being written down. So... Um, so I, I did that, but in the process of that, I became really aware of how teachers in the town in Hearst perceived the kids who came from the reserve. So the kids who came from the reserve spoke English. They spoke English as many of them as their first language, but it was an English that was colored by, mm. you know, it was a dialect of English that was colored by the fact that their grandparents and some of their parents didn't speak English right. as their first language. And so the teacher's expectations of those kids were lower than their expectations of the other kids because of the language that they spoke. So that's a long way of saying, I realized in 1978 that I knew nothing about the relationship. I had been taught nothing in school. It was what I had been taught was a lie and that I needed throughout my life to find ways to interact with that fact. And so as a politician, from the time I was a school trustee and then into my role as an MPP, I tried to find ways to work on that relationship. And that was before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But once we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, I was determined we were going to implement those um, those recommendations for me, the most important one being that we change our curriculum in schools, that we tell our story more truthfully and very differently than we had for 150 and, years. And yet we still have absolute tragedy everywhere I look. Absolutely. Right. No. I, I just can't yeah. believe that, you know, when we get up on our horse and tell people in the rest of the world how they should behave, and I think, what are you talking about? Yeah. I mean... I, I had somebody on my on this podcast who I said, well, if a, a child north of Thunder Bay is being taken out of their home to be sent to a, a school and is dead six months later, and he interrupted me and said, no, no, I'm sorry, but if you li it's a failed community. They should just leave. And I thought, that's it. And that, what kind of an answer is that? that well, exactly. I mean, it's, and it's not an answer. It's not an answer. It's not a solution. And so. It's barbaric. The, the things, the kinds of things that we were trying to do was we were putting literally hundreds of millions of dollars into creating positions for people on reserve. Um, the, the one that I, uh, you know, that I, I think was very important was family wellness. Uh, a family wellness role so that people who were living on reserve had the opportunity to um, to get some support as they went through difficult transitions. I mean, there's water, Ralph. Yeah, no, there's there's education. We worked on all of those fronts, but there are some core issues around family capacity and community yeah. capacity that need to be addressed. And it's our obligation provincially and federally to support that kind of healing. And morally. Uh, so I want to, I don't have a lot of time left with you, but I, I could go on forever with you, but I, I want to figure out a couple of things. <clears throat> what have you learned from your fall from grace? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, my fall from grace was a political fall from yes. grace, right? Yes. I don't feel that I fell from grace in the eyes of 
whatever moral being we believe in or, you know, I, I fell from grace in the political world. And what I've learned from that is that it just reinforced my understanding that um, we don't have a lot of time to do the good that we want to do. You know, we need to seize the moment. So I'm really glad. I'm really glad that I did that I took the risks that I took. You know, mm. I got lots of advice from the business community not to raise the minimum wage. I got lots of advice that, um, you know, that we, we were going too far on tackling climate change. I mean, there were lots of things that we did that there was pushback on. I'm glad I didn't listen to all that pushback, and we actually moved forward on a lot of files. But now you sit <clears throat> across from a government that is intent on reversing almost everything you did. And... You don't have the same power you had, and you've already had that power, so you know what it's like to have it. And now, I wonder what you think, what do I do now? I mean, yeah. you're a person who's always done something. What What are you going to do now? So let me just go back to your previous question and answering this. Um, the other thing I've learned is that moving the bar is important. You know, that, right. that you move the bar forward, and you can't let yourself get discouraged. I mean, of course, you're going to be sad and you're going to be upset, but you can't give up and despair when the pendulum swings the other way because people in this province are earning $14 an hour. They wouldn't be earning $14 an hour on minimum wage if we hadn't been there. There is more money in the um, violence against women sector because we were there. You know, there were changes we made that were changes for the better that that this government is not going to reverse. And quite frankly, even things like the basic income pilot that we put in place that for me was a very important innovation and attempt to find a new way to support people living in poverty and help them uh, tr make the transition. Even with that, even though uh, Ford canceled it, we now know in Ontario that it's possible to do that. We know even from the two years that people were getting jobs, they were making a transition into being able to take part in their community better just by having that $16,000 a year. And so that fall from grace for me is also a learning in, yeah, moving the bar is very important. And that's what I say to young people. It is worth it, even though you may end up very, very sad at the end of it you know you have the opportunity to change people's lives what do i do now well i'm doing this i'm talking to you i'm answering people's questions i'm use i'm trying to use my experience mm -hmm. to help people understand what it was like what we did and why it was important you know i do aging to saging workshops because people <clears throat> kind of back into getting older <laughs> right? It's not really happening to me. And oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in the game. I'm still here. Yeah. Um, but they don't spend a lot of time taking the inventory of their lives and looking at the wisdom of their lives as something that they need to cultivate. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Hindu culture, when you uh, are younger, you are a householder. You create family. You've done this. And then when you uh, age to a certain point, you become what they call a forest dweller. And you're in contemplation of your life. Do you see yourself? I see you so much as someone who is in action that I wonder, do you have a yearning for a contemplative life at this point or do you not? I, I, I have a yearning to understand how to do that. You know, <laughs> I, I, for years, people have been saying, you need to do yoga. I was like, I, I don't know how to I'm do that. I'm running. But 
I I did some writing last year. I mm-hmm. had an opportunity to go away for a month and actually do some writing. And I, I, you know, I found myself writing about my experiences and trying to make some sense of them. So, yeah, I do have a longing for that. I also, um, I'm also trying to reclaim the word crone. So sage right. is a nice word. Crone has been, you know, old wicked woman but Maiden it can be crone. yeah yes, yes exactly yeah. i i'm 66 years old and i i love the idea that i could be helpful to young people coming up just by helping them understand the experiences that i've gone through you know i mm-hmm. i want to do that and i my experience has been in the last year when i'm asked to go to a class or i'm asked to talk to a group of people or a group of young women and sometimes it's sometimes it's mixed sometimes it's not young people have tons of questions they're really curious and they can't get the answers from social media or the news so so yeah i i like the idea of aging into sage. But there's a lot of pressure, Ralph, I'll tell you. There's a lot of pressure. People will say to me, well, what are you going to do next? You know, what's the thing you're going to do and next? And it better be big. And it, yeah, people have said to me, I just know you're going to do something great. And I think, oh my goodness, <laughs> I need to bake cookies and spend time with my grandchildren, yeah, you know. Yeah. And yes, help where I can. It's so difficult to have had something like being the premier of a, the largest province in, in terms of population in this in this country, and then have people just expect that that's all you've ever wanted. Right. Right? It's not right. all you've ever wanted. Right? Well, and, and in fact, I I would not have been in provincial politics at all if Mike Harris had not come along and started taking a sledgehammer to the education system. It's I mean, a gift. That's, but it was a gift. <laughs> well, it, but it, but you know, you talk about backing into old age. I mean, yeah. I, I, I answer the question all the time. Young kids will say, you know, did you dream of being premier? No. Mm. No, I didn't. I believed that I had an, a, a responsibility to give back to the community. I lived with privilege. You know, I was a very, very lucky kid to be born into the family that I was, to have the opportunities that I had. And I grew up, I mean, again, this is where spirituality and my upbringing in the church comes in. I firmly believe that it it has been my responsibility to do what I can to help. It's just it's part of why I'm on the planet, you know? Mm-hmm. And so and so that was a real imperative in my life. Um and I've now lost the thread of what no, I was no, saying. No, but, no, but that's yeah. th- that's the thing is in 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 the Hebrew faith kavana is a word. Mm-hmm. And that word is intention. What intention do you wake up with every day? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that everything has to come to fruition, but you have, it's like the word sin. Sin in both Christian and Jewish faith is not an evil act. It mm-hmm. is the inability to aim properly. Right. You're off target. And that's where sin comes from. So Kavanah helps you to refocus and aim properly at the things that you care about and to stay true to yourself through the entire journey as opposed to becoming what you believe people are asking you to become. To be, yeah. And, you know, it's there's another another sort of thorny question, I think, uh, that has come up for me in the last year and a half. Um, People have said to me, it's time for you to look after yourself. You need to look after yourself. And I... I mean, I understand what they're saying. They're saying, 
we don't want you to get sick. We want right. you. We don't want you to be in a toxic environment. We want you to be healthy and strong. But, but this notion that somehow I need to find ways to look after myself is is kind of foreign to how I've lived. So it's 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 a shift for me, and yeah. I don't and I don't know if it's a shift that I can make. I don't know if it's a shift that I. I want to make, and I don't really know what it means because I believe that if I'm, if I'm being good to other people, if I'm treating other people well, and you know, it's not that I don't have a temper and it's not that I'm not <laughs> grumpy sometimes because I am. Ask my staff, ask my kids. But basically, I'm trying to treat people decently. That's good for me too. Right. Right. So, so sorting right. that out is, is challenging for me. Yeah. But when you, when you've been in service, Sometimes people who care about you say self-care, serve, serve part of yourself because you need to feed that other part. And if you move into that idea of, of being a crone, mm-hmm. then in a way, you, we move from our ego state in, into our real state because our ego can push us through most of our lives, right? Right. Right. right? And I'm going to climb this next thing. Yeah. And, but then all of a sudden, it's not that anymore. What is it? And in that is self is a self love, which I think if you didn't have that, you wouldn't have been able to endure the people who attacked you for being gay, the people who attacked you for being a premier, the people who attacked you for your policies, right? Uh, and had any humor about yourself at that point. But as you said at the beginning, you, this was not about me. This is I don't own that. Right. They do. And I was, you know, when I talk about my privilege, um, the great privilege I had was being raised in a healthy household, and I, I have, I have inner resources and, right. and confidence and belief in the goodness of myself and others that allowed me to get through that. And I also believe life is ridiculous. You know, I do believe it's. You know, I love Monty Python. I love Terry Jones. Died I today. know that's what made me think Always of it. Look on, on the, the bright side of life. life. Yeah, yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, or him playing the piano naked <laughs> in the middle. So I do think I do think life's ridiculous, and so that sense of humor. Yeah. Not that I'm funny, but I can see funny when I. You know, I know it when I see <laughs> no, it. Here right? it comes again. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen, it's been an absolute joy speaking with you and uh, I'm, I'm happy I don't have to look at you through a phalanx of humans anymore. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for doing it with me. Uh, Kathleen Wynne is the former Premier of Ontario amongst a, mu- a bunch of other things she's been and is to this very moment and is a crone in training. Crone in training. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you. Well, what a wonderful way to spend some time with somebody who I've worked with and, and uh, admire for the things that she's done. Kathleen Wynne, Premier of Ontario for five years and uh, really a quality person. And, you know, people often say things to me like, politicians, they're all a bunch of crooks. They're all a bunch of bums. They're human beings, and they sacrifice enormous amounts to be of service publicly. And yes, some of them get a little carried away, and some of them don't really deal with spotlights well, but there's a hell of a lot of others that do. And she's one of them. And I really appreciated that conversation. Not that kind of rabbi, not that kind of premier. We'll talk soon. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgie. <laughs>